Hello and welcome to this podcast. My name is Liz Cantor and I'm a professional support lawyer in the Herbert Smith Freehills Global Arbitration Team. And I'm Vanessa Naish, a professional support consultant also in our global arbitration practice. Now that we've started a new year, we thought it would be interesting to discuss what we think are the most significant English arbitration developments of 2023. In preparation for recording today, we decided that we would each go away and give some thought to our top pick. Um, we haven't conferred with each other prior to going on air, so it'll be interesting to see whether we've picked the same case. Well, if so, it could be a very short podcast indeed. <laughs> OK, Vanessa, why don't you go first? What's your top pick? OK, so um, I hope you don't think this is a cop out, but I'm going to focus on a theme rather than one individual case. OK, given we've started recording, I'll let you off. OK, that's a relief. Phew. So the, the theme I've chosen is the expansion in the English court's reach in supporting the arbitration process. And the most obvious and recent example of that expansion is the recent line of anti-suit injunction cases and um, where the, the English court have stepped in to prevent court proceedings that have been commenced in Russia uh, in breach of arbitration clauses that have been agreed between the parties. And although the grant of anti-suit injunctions and support of arbitration isn't new, it's significant, I think, and I'm sure you'll agree, that these were anti-suit injunctions granted in cases where the seat was Paris uh, rather than London. Yes, that's the Deutsche Bank case, which went to the Court of Appeal, and also the Commerce Bank case, which was a High Court, Commercial Court case. Um, and there was also that third case, the Unicredit case, where the anti-suit injunction wasn't granted. Um, and I know that's going to appeal in January, which would be a good one to watch out for. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the fact that the English courts granted the anti-suit injunctions in two cases here, even though the parties have chosen a French seat, is very significant. Um, I, I believe that these cases are actually the first of their kind and that although there had been some case law and some commentary stating that it was theoretically possible at least for an English court to do this, there hadn't been any cases in practice. So it was really interesting to see how the courts had approached this issue. If I remember correctly, they each framed the issue as one of whether the English court was the proper forum for the claim, but with a slightly different analysis in each case. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the Court of Appeal in the Deutsche Bank case focused on the Spilliada test, and that requires the court to um, identify the proper forum in which the case can be suitably tried in the interests of all the parties and for the ends of justice. And the Court of Appeal reached the conclusion that England was the proper forum for the claim because in this particular case, an, an anti-suit injunction could not be granted in France. Um, I think I'm right in thinking that at first instance, the court decided that granting an ASI would be inconsistent with the approach of the French courts at this, as the seat of the arbitration because it's not possible to actually obtain an ASI in France. Yeah, yeah. whereas the Court of Appeal took the opposite view, deciding that the lack of availability of an anti-suit injunction in France was all the more reason for the English courts to grant, grant that ASI. Um, and the test involved looking at the relevant alternative forum or foras um, and whether the, the relief sought was available there, which it was not. And how was the approach different in the Commerce Bank case? Well, so in the in the Commerce Bank case, the judge also looked at other potential fora, including Russia. Um, and in addition, however, he looked at the relevance of the seat. Um, in this particular instance, he considered that to be relatively limited and the connections with England. The judge then relied on three factors to decide whether the English court should act. So first, that the arbitration agreement and the contract were governed by English law. 
Second, that English law provided um, a juridical um, advantage over the French courts, which do not grant ASIs. And then third, that neither Russia nor France were the proper places to obtain the type of relief sought. And the judge also noted that the other potential routes to remedy were foreclosed and that the negative promise not to sue in a foreign jurisdiction gave rights under English law regardless of the seat. Mm. Clearly, the fact that ASIs are unavailable in France was a very important factor in both decisions. Um, so what do you think the outcome would have been had the seat been in a jurisdiction where ASIs are actually available? That's a really nasty question and a difficult <laughs> one. OK, well, I think the decision would obviously certainly have been a lot easier had the seat been in England. Um, you can look at some of the more recent cases like that of um, um, Renaissance Securities. Uh, which is an example of where an ASI was granted in respect of an English seat. Um, but if it had been somewhere else, they would have looked at the proper forum question again, including the question of whether England was a suitable place to grant the ASI and if, if it was in the interest of justice. Um, if an ASI was available at the seat of arbitration, then that would have been an additional hurdle. Um, and a reason why that England was not the proper forum. But I don't think it would necessarily rule it out if there was a connection to England that could be relied on in order for the court to act. Great answer. <laughs> um, moving on from ASIs, you said at the beginning that this was a theme in terms of the English courts extending their reach. Um, what else did you have in mind other than the ASI line of cases? So I think that this theme is echoed in some of the Law Commission's recommendations for reform of the Arbitration Act that it made in 2023. And I'm thinking in particular of the changes that were recommended for Section 44. Um, and Section 44 contains the powers that the court can exercise in support of arbitration. Yes, and we know that the court's powers under this section are the same powers that it can exercise in relation to court proceedings. Um, the section essentially imports law from domestic court proceedings. But previously, there was a concern that Section 44 didn't bite on third parties or that only certain provisions did or indeed that it was just unclear. And now that's where the Law Commission has come in and recommended that Section 44 be amended to confirm that court orders can be made against third parties in support of arbitration. So that would extend to things like taking evidence from witnesses, for example, or preserving evidence and making orders relating to property. Absolutely. And um, the revision of the Arbitration Act was included in the King's speech and the second reading of the draft bill took place in late December 2023. So we are expecting that these will become law during the next session of Parliament. So probably around Easter to summer 2024. And once the revised Section 44 comes into force, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out in practice. Now, instinctively, it seems to me at least, the clarity offered by the revisions and the Law Commission's report should mean that the courts are willing to go a bit further than they have done previously in respect of Section 44. And so we might start to see some new arbitration-related applications under this section where parties try to either involve third parties or ask them to provide information or evidence. Um, so I think it's an interesting area, not so much a development, but maybe a sign of a supportive seat becoming increasingly supportive. Um, so something to watch and see how it develops. Um, right, enough from me. Let's move on to your choice now, Liz. So what have you chosen? Well, I confess that I also cheated a bit on this <laughs> and focused on a theme too, um, which is the arbitrary 
possibility of disputes in the consumer sector. But I was very torn between this and the Radisson Hotel case, so perhaps we can also briefly talk about the Radisson case at the end. Okay, well, I also thought about choosing the Radisson case. So yes, let's definitely cheat and come back to it at the end. But consumer arbitration, um, that's a really interesting choice. We've certainly had um, a good spate of arbitration cases with a consumer angle in 2023. Um, Do you want to talk us through them? Yes. So the most significant case, I think, is the Chechekin against Payward case um, in which the commercial court refused enforcement of an arbitration award um, on the grounds that it was um, contrary to public policy. So this is obviously something that's extremely unusual for the English courts to do. As you'll remember, the case was about a dispute between Mr. Chechekin and the Payward Group, who operates the Kraken crypto asset trading platform. And Mr. Chechekin was a consumer who lost money on the platform. Okay, I'm trying to remember the case. Um, There was a mandatory arbitration clause and it provided, was it JAMS arbitration? Yes, exactly. Um, Seated in San Francisco. So Payward received a favourable arbitration award in California, which it sought to enforce against Mr. Chechekin in England. And Mr. Chechekin resisted enforcement of the award on the basis that it would be against English public policy for it to be enforced. He relied on both the Consumer Rights Act and also the Financial Services and Markets Act. And he also commenced proceedings in the English courts. So the court had to consider the really interesting question as to whether the Consumer Rights Act applied here, given that the parties had chosen a different governing law and a foreign seat. The judge decided in the end that the Consumer Rights Act did apply because Mr. Chechekin was a UK national, a consumer, um, and Paywood was a company incorporated in England. And also the services were paid for in pounds uh, and money moved between um, English bank accounts. So this differs from another case last year where it was decided that there was not a sufficient connection with the UK and so the Consumer Rights Act did not apply and that was the Eternity Sky case which is actually going to the Court of Appeal later this year. Okay so they're both really interesting cases. Um, What does that mean for the arbitration of consumer disputes with a close connection to the UK in the future? Well, in the Chechekin decision, the judge emphasised that mandatory business-to-consumer arbitration is not in itself unfair under English law. Um, Instead, the question that the court will ask is whether a reasonable consumer in the position of, say, Mr Chechekin, would have agreed to the contract. Um, And in that case, the specific public policy embodied in UK consumer legislation and also um, FUSMA meant that the issues needed to be um, governed by English law and not decided overseas. Um, So I think there are two key takeaways. The first is that you don't have to have an English seated arbitration clause or even an English governing law for the um, English consumer rights regime to bite, as the close connection test is really broad. So businesses will need to think about where their consumers might be and whether there are any other factors that might, might bring in consumer legislation from elsewhere. And the second and most important one for clause drafting is that you really need to ensure that you have the right dispute resolution clause for the right case. Um, With a checking case, the judge commented that the choice of arbitration may have been appropriate for the consumer and even the FISMA disputes um, had it been an English seated arbitration clause. But clearly a San Francisco arbitration was not the appropriate forum to start resolving issues which were ultimately considered to be domestic and English in nature. Okay, so does that mean it's worth thinking about having different arbitration clauses or different clauses for different jurisdictions? Yes, I think that's right. And as more arbitration clauses are inserted into business to consumer contracts, we may well see more disputes as well as court guidance on this point. 
Okay, that's really interesting, Liz. Thank you. And um, shall, shall we just finish off with a quick word on the Radisson case? Um, yes, I think um, this is quite a surprising case. Um, it involved a challenge to a partial award based on ex parte communications between an arbitrator and one of the parties, which is obviously a very serious issue. However, the substance of the challenge was not even considered by the court. Um, it was thrown out for not being brought promptly under Section 73 of the Act. The judge held that Radisson had continued participating in the arbitration for nearly two weeks, despite holding the belief that it had grounds for objection based on those ex parte communications. So as a result, it lost the right to challenge the arbitral award. Two weeks doesn't feel very long at all. Indeed, um, and that's why I think this case was so important to mention. It's a bit of a wake-up call that you really do have to take a decision to challenge an award very quickly if it's based on a circumstance like this. Thanks. Okay, well, definitely one worth knowing about. Thank you, Liz, um, and thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks very much.